Welcome to Game Changers, a podcast about trailblazing West Australian women and their contribution to the wonderful game of soccer. This collection was produced and developed by the Centre for Stories and the State Library of Western Australia. Together, we are sharing stories that reflect our state's rich heritage, diversity and history. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded on Wajak Noongar Buja, and we pay our respects to their elders, traditional custodians and knowledge keepers who are the first storytellers of this place. In the lead-up to Perth hosting some of the games for one of the world's largest sporting tournaments, the FIFA Women's World Cup Australia and New Zealand 2023, we hear stories from local women who rose up against inequality and stereotypes to champion the game of soccer as far back as the 1970s. We hear from elite athletes, past and present, considered to be the best in the game, both locally and globally. And we hear from the community role models who are courageously making soccer more accessible and equitable for future generations of women, young girls and newcomers of all genders to the game. Sports media journalist Chris Morano sat down and heard why self-belief, sacrifice and strength is what it takes to become champions of soccer. In today's episode, Chris talks to Jamie Page, a player and committee member for the South Perth Pride Football Club, an inclusive soccer club for players of all different backgrounds, races, ages, abilities and sexualities. The club was founded to address a clear lack of inclusivity in the game in Perth and works to help members of the LGBTQI plus community get back into soccer. Enjoy. What was it like growing up in England as a kid? It was fantastic. I mean, my earliest memories of England are literally two things, rain and football, and (laughs) ice fishings with, if you include mud. Um... It was um, a glorious time. It's the swinging 60s and we had a large, a large family and they just lived that 60s lifestyle. It was great. You know, we would watch the Beatles and the Stones on television. We'd watch the football. It was all exciting. Everything was fresh and new and everything seemed, yeah, literally brand new. It was a lovely time. Um, you know, typically England, it was dark and grey a lot of the time, but that was lovely too. And um, I guess my earliest memories of England are sliding around in the mud. Mm. It was great fun taking a ball. I used to take my little ball over the park, over the field, should I say. We we lived in a place called Tilbury, which was a dock town uh, south of, southeast of London. We had a beautiful muddy field and you just want to get yourself totally caked in, in mud and kick around the ball and pretend that you were playing for West Ham, <laughs> being an East End sort of a locality. And I would come home on those rainy, awful days and mum would sit me in the sink and try and cake the mud off me. We had a big family, but I didn't have any brothers or sisters. But I had lots of uncles and aunties, huge, great. And my dad had, um, I think, seven brothers and sisters. Wow. 
plus all their extended family. And they were just, you know, they were just a wonderful group of people that just used used to love love life. Um, my my granddad, uh, my my grandfather used to run a working men's club mm-hmm. in the town. So every weekend, we would spend time at the working men's working men's club. What it was great. We used to watch everyone dance, and we used to get bands in there, and we used to sit down the front and the stage, watching all the bands as they used to come through and dancing. And um, getting all excited about the day of rolling in the mud on the Saturday morning, <laughs> before the the afternoon game at the local, the local, um, the local team, which was Tilbury Town. God bless them. <laughs> and uh, then you'd go back to the club and sit in the ladies' room with my nana, and wait for match of the day at ten o'clock. That was every weekend. That's how we lived. Yeah, that's what we did. I, I guess I must have been around three or four when I I just took a natural shine to the ball, and I was probably brainwashed by a lot of by my elder one of my elder uncles who was football mad. And so I used to literally go over the field, run up and down, up and down till no one could stand it anymore, and that was what made me happy. And then. You know, um, then I'd go home and draw pictures. I'd have a collection of different teams' sports um, shirts from all the different teams. You know, I was a fan of all teams. Yeah, it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing to sit there drawing pictures of me as a soccer player. I even changed my name on my yeah, birth certificate. How did you? To, uh, <laughs> One of the West Ham strikers <laughs> who was very famous, which was Jeff Hurst, who um, scored the hat-trick in the 1966 World Cup. Okay. He was my hero. Yeah. And my uncle and my dad used to take me up to up to see West Ham. Mm-hmm. I used to sit on their shoulders in the crazy crowds, often to be carried down to the front of the pitch because it was too dangerous. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting on the policeman's shoulders down on the touchline watching, I'm sure it was must have been Manchester United, seeing Bobby Charlton and all those heroes. You know, it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing you know, to hear the roar of the crowd and see it that looking back, that was probably um, as, as we moved on out of that locality because we did, we moved to Africa when I was seven. And everything sort of changed again, mm-hmm. and it was a whole new life. What did soccer look like and feel like in Africa? Was that at the time when you were the captain of the team at school? It was okay. I mean, it was a different climate, obviously, so it was a lot hotter. Mm-hmm. But I was still at the time still football mad, and um, I used to be one of the ringleaders to get everyone out on the on the field at lunchtime and we'd kick about for as long as we could. That's all we ever did, you know, and if when I would go home from school, I would sit there and kick a ball against the wall. Uh, we spent um, about four and a half, five years in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that period, I went to boarding school for a year because it was a little bit difficult to get schooling where we lived. 
and um, that's where I became captain of the soccer team. Mm-hmm. And I think I was also I might have captained the cricket team at some point, or one of the cricket teams. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly enough, one of the reasons that I left boarding school is because they were converted to rugby. So us younger kids, you know, when I was ten or eleven, would play would play soccer. Yeah. Then when you got older, you'd play rugby. Yeah. And that was a deal breaker for me. So I said, nah, <laughs> we we'll do that. So I, I went back to a, a local school yeah. in the country that we lived, which was a place called Zambia. We lived in a city called Kipley. And I missed the bus to go back to boarding school deliberately. <laughs> so half deliberately, and it was a Freudian slip of thoughts. And I went back to the local school. And I was pretty much the only white kid in the school at that point. Mm. And that that was life changing. It was different, but it was great. And you know, I just never imagined any sort of divide in terms of race or, or colour. I just sort of tried to fit fit in there with them. And that's when I was first introduced to guitars, oddly enough. So that's where you learned to play guitar? That's where I learned to play guitar. A couple of my school friends were just obsessed with guitars as much as I was obsessed with football. It's been an amazing, amazing life. You know, I've had lots of good things happen musically and all kinds. You know, some really wonderful things that have happened. Worked with some great people and um yeah, I mean, the ultimate thing that's happened happened to me through all that was um, I've actually um, I had a song that I share co-writing with Brian May from Queen, which was a bit of a minor hit for Brian. Yeah. And to make that more exciting, for me anyway, was um, the fact that when Brian May was touring the song, he he um, basically um, used my song and Bohemian Rhapsody as a, as a mashup and did a medley of my song and a drummer I used to work with who was playing with him's drum side. You know, so I, I cannot wish for a greater thing to happen to have had my song yeah. mixed with one of the great rock and roll songs ever written, yeah. best rock and roll songs ever written. It's another pinch yourself moment. I did. I spent five years in England through the 80s, really a time, really hard to break through. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, my vulnerabilities were too great at the time. And I went through a period of um, serious destabilization and a nervous breakdown because of it. And it was sort of recognized by those around me that I wasn't strong enough for that lifestyle, mm. which I wasn't. And I, I guess for me growing up, being that I also had the other situation going on as an undercurrent of knowing that my gender identity was not all of it, it would seem, mm. which is something that had happened as long as I'd actually been playing soccer. And I knew that there was an issue with, with who I was mm-hmm. from as long as I can remember from that same period. And being very young, that's yeah. why I didn't want to play rugby, mm-hmm. whereas I felt soccer was a much more acceptable game for me, felt right. 
And um, the music to me at the same time fit very much with everything I'd grown up with anyway. I just wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> and so I guess my focus went from wanting to be a football hero and play for West Ham to being a rock star. And um, I continued playing soccer when we came to Australia in 1974. I would have been 13 or 14. And I played for Wireless City for a few years. And um, But I was struggling more and more with my sense of identity and who I was. And it got harder and harder to play soccer as the other kids were growing. I wasn't. My body was developing differently mm-hmm. as they all hit puberty. Things mm-hmm. were weird. You know, I remember coming off off the field crying one day because, um, you know, I didn't have the strength of all the other kids. Mm. I just didn't. And I didn't understand why. And I just remember crying to my dad going, I don't know what's wrong with me. Is it my legs? Is it my body? Something is wrong. Mm. Something is just not right. And eventually I drifted, temporarily drifted away from from soccer and put all my energy into being sick rock star I wanted to be, mm-hmm. and that became a focus of my life for many, many, many years after. Mm-hmm. Even though I loved to watch soccer, I loved to kick a ball around over the park. I was too scared to play, play in teams anymore with older older people. It just wasn't, wasn't happening for me. Then eventually, um, many years later, through my dad, through someone at my dad's work, he'd sort of mentioned that his boss played for a soccer team in Gosnells mm-hmm. and um, maybe I'd like to go down and have a, have a crack, which was Gosnells City at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was a lot older by then, so I, I was playing veterans soccer with them and that's when the differences really hit home because I, I would feel so out of place Literally, when we had to get changed or whatever, I'd be embarrassed and sitting in the corner going, oh, my God, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And when when we had to get changed after I'd get showered, I would refuse to go in the showers and I'd just wait till everyone had left and then I'd sneak in there and do my own thing. But one of the great days we had was we had a mixed match as a friendly and I got to play with some ladies and it was... Like I'd come home, it was like this is, this is so much better. This is, this feels right. Mm. And through that period, I was slowly starting to come to terms with my, my life and who I was. And it's a very long, difficult process with much self-loathing and, and internalized, um, transphobia, and denial, mm. and. And um, the only thing that really stopped me from playing in was I did my ACL playing f- training for Gosnells and I still played on with a broken ACL for six or seven years. But that was my determination. I would go out there, my leg would fall apart. I'd spend weeks of rehab. Eventually, I'd, I'd, after a third opinion on my knee, they said that the ACL was gone. So I had an operation, but I could never come back. Mm. I could never get the fitness to play at that time. So that from there, that really led to the transition 
um, the transitional phase of my life where I sort of looked looked at myself and was honest with myself and said, well, this is who you are. You have to live your truth. You cannot not be, no matter what the cost, whether it costs you your job, which it's indirectly cost my job, whether it cost me one musical career, which arguably you could could say it did or did not. But I thought you have to know what it's like to live your truth. You have to. And so I literally started over from nothing with no job. Uh, My musical career went down the tubes temporarily and I had to work back from that, which was a huge huge uh, thing to do you needed just mm-hmm. ridiculous crazy amount of resilience to do that yeah but all the way through that so i used to drive past the local i used to drive past game fields where there'd be teams playing and i'd be so incredibly sad that i couldn't do that i love the game we used to watch it all the time i never had stopped supporting the game through all of those years um, almost to a point of being obsessed. And um, I thought, damn it, there's got to be someone, there's got to be an LGB something out there that I can do where I can fit in and be comfortable. That's where I found South Perth. When you were driving by some of those fields, soccer pitches, you said you'd feel a lot of fear. Where, like, what was the fear there of what could happen if you walked into one of those clubs? Or... I knew that I'd get laughed at. I knew that everyone, and, you know, it's still an issue if you, even if you, even today, you know, when you're at the club rooms, you know, you're safe amongst your LGBTI colleagues, teammates, but there's always a sense that they're sort of laughing at you Well taking the mickey out of you from behind your back. Mm-hmm. So you're always worried about the rejection. You were even you you would worry about people not wanting to play play against you because of who you are. Mm-hmm. And um, to, yeah, just it was just a fear of rejection. Yeah. Really. And had you had like terrible comments made or laughter no, in previous it was laugh- situations? It was always laughter. There always is, you know. You cannot go out on any given day without getting someone looking at you from with a disapproving eye. That's just the way it is. It just never ends. Mm. But, you know, society is getting better and the acceptance is much better. And that that's one of the beautiful things about what we can do at um, Perth Pride at South Perth is, you know, we we can empower, we do empower people to be able to live their truths and play the game they love at the same time and that you don't have to give it away. You don't have to suffer that sort of sacrifice to be who you are. It's okay to be who you are and go out and kick them all and, do what you love. Mm. Mm-hmm. How wonderful. It is. And just a wonderful group of people and in, incredibly supportive. And, you know, they're, they're paving, in my opinion, they're paving the way for a lot of 
a lot of well-being was in the community. You know, because a lot of us suffer trauma through this whole process. And to have a place where you can undo some of that trauma and feel good about yourself is a wonderful thing. So as you've shared your story, um, you know, I was just thinking for someone who doesn't understand what it's like to be a trans woman, how can we help them understand what your experience is like? So if you even like when you're talking about coming out and, you know, how you were feeling like how do we help people understand what it what it feels like you know imagine that you're a square pig in a round hole you don't fit and you want to fit that's what it feels like to be to me oh that's what it felt like to me to be a trans person was to find somewhere that you fit and felt felt good being you it, the gender spectrum is quite wide. Not everybody falls under the same. We're not just all, all one or all the other. Some of us will sort of, um, you know, like a non-binary person will be somewhere in the middle of that gender spectrum. Yeah, a trans woman like me is someone who was reasonably perceived and medically perceived to be one way but um, was actually not that. And um, yeah, in my case, you know, hormonally and otherwise, there was other issues going on too. So you know, technically I could even have been described as intersex, which makes it even harder. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not harder, but more difficult for people to understand. Mm-hmm. But if you've got uh, characteristics of both genders, it can be hard to have someone emphasize with that. But I think to realize that we're just we're just human beings who want to live and love and be normal, do do things like everyone else and not feel that we're the subject of someone's joke. Mm-hmm. That you know, we're treated with the respect that we deserve. Mm-hmm. You know, we are good, kind, normal everyday people just like everyone else and everyone deserves that respect everyone yeah can you tell us more about South Perth Pride the team and how it was started and what's the yeah what's the atmosphere like and how do you feel when you join everyone for a game every week it's wonderful it's um I mean I joined it literally by doing Google search, trying to find an LGBTI soccer team anywhere. I don't know what made me do it, but it was just, Was that your search? That was yeah. it, yeah. Just to try and find something. And um, I sent them a message to... I sent the message through to South Perth and they were very quick to get back to me and say, actually, funnily enough, we, you know, we've, we've got this team and um, they hooked me up with Declan... And Andy, the two coaches, the people who ran the team, and I went down there. You felt immediately at home. I was happy to help them out as much as as much as I could. And after the game, we would always sit down in the clubhouse, and they would put on a great, great spread of food, and we'd sit sit there having just having a drink and enjoying each other's company which we still do 
consistently today, we always go back to that club room and every time you leave, you give everyone a hug. That's the sort of feeling yeah. everyone is so so warm and friendly. It's just Caring. unbelievable. They all care about each other. There's no judgment. And um, everyone looks forward to it. You know, if we can bring some younger kids through, that's great. If mm-hmm. there's older people that want to come out and keep fit and healthy, that's great. The youngest, I think, was around about 15. And uh, the oldest is me, obviously. The, the rest of them are a different generation to me. You know, I'm by far the oldest by probably 20-odd years. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they love to go clubbing. They love to doing all the things that younger kids do, whereas I'm more of a boring homebody when I'm not playing fun music. You said, though, that you've become, would you say, a bit of a role model or maybe a mentor to the younger players? You try to be. You, you hope that you are, and you you try and teach them what you've learned or you try and encourage them. You just try and pick them up and they fall down mm-hmm. and say it's, you know, you you show them techniques. You show them how to how to play the game if they even need it. Now, mm-hmm. Some of them are pretty good anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, if someone gets hurt, you'll be the first person there to pick them up. Mm-hmm. And you know, if they are wavering or struggling, that's when you really need to be encouraged and to make sure that. If they're not coming to training because they're depressed or they're mm-hmm. maybe feeling something worse, that, mm-hmm. you know, the team the team will encourage them out of their shell. Mm-hmm. You know, super important for, for our community. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency for a lot of us to sort of become hermits and just living in our own little bubbles mm-hmm. and the team manages to exploit that bubble. Mm-hmm. What has has joining the team given you in your life or how has it shaped your life? It's given me a lot of self-confidence. It's um, improved my health no end because, you know, keeping fit is the healthiest thing you can do for your mind as well. So, you know, you walk away feeling a million dollars when you walk away. Even me being as old as I am, I still... Love that feeling of just hard running and getting getting involved. There's no pressure. Mm. You know, there's no competitive edge to it. Mm-hmm. So what position do you play? Yeah, I sort of move around a bit, but um, they'd largely put me as a striker, but yeah. I often will pull right back defend a lot too even at my old age I'm up and down and all over the place if I have to be the league itself what's the setup of playing and games and what's the length of the season yeah for us it's much more difficult because we're a mixed team so we have gay lesbian trans non-binary members and that doesn't fit well into any format unfortunately so the only outlet we have for Reasonably competitive games is to organise some friendlies with existing, usually ladies teams. It's always the ladies who use us as cannon fodder <laughs> to <clears throat> to get suits for their seasons. Mm-hmm. Or, so that's all we can really do, which is something that <clears throat> we do honestly miss. Is that something you would like to 
influence and change to be able to create a league or I mean you know we lose a lot of a lot of players to the to the ladies ladies teams or we feed them and the ladies teams will train with us because we train on the off season as well so we have a huge influx of South Perth ladies come train with us mm-hmm. during the off season which is great we've had some players that have played at you know, relatively high levels that are really skilled come through at times, which is wonderful too. Mm. So ideally the plan for us is to um, hopefully get more friendlies with other Pride teams. Mm. I know that there's a team in, I think it Bustleton maybe, or Bunbury that we could look at. And a couple of our members flew over for Sydney World Pride. Oh, yeah. And took part in the soccer tournament that they had over there. Which was fantastic for them. Yeah, we couldn't we couldn't get the whole team there, which we would have liked to have done, but the time and the expense was just too great. Mm-hmm. But um, those are the things that we'll be looking at: is literally trying to grow the involvement of the LGBTI community mm-hmm. within our team to the point where it would be great if we inspire other clubs mm-hmm. to have pride teams as well, which would be even better. And who knows, maybe there's with time and a bit of investment in time and maybe some funding from somewhere that we could have a little pride league. Yeah, I know through Fremantle City Football Club that they're looking to um, this season do a bit of a pride round. Perth Glory did its first um, pride round this this season and, yeah, there was a lot of great support. Yeah, and it's just getting better and better. Mm -hmm. With the Women's World Cup coming especially happening in Perth, what will it, you know, what could it mean for the Pride community or what would you like to see happen for the Pride community? Yeah, I, I think it's raising such great in it, great awareness for the sport in general, but specifically for the women's game to be respected to a level that it, it's deserved. And um, I think a lot of people to be able to accept the Women's World Cup is something special, will um, hopefully lead to greater acceptance across the board. I, I would I would hope, I know that I'm sure that there's a reasonable amount of uh, gay players within within the, the women's game, and I think that's really helpful because yeah, I think the support base there is wonderful. I think um, accepting that um, it's not just a man's game is a wonderful, huge step forward. And it's just a a joy to see how far women's football has come in such a short, relatively short time in terms of profile. It's just Mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. And was it last night or the night before, there were 60,000 people to watch the Arsenal women's team in the Champions League semi-final, which is just miraculous. Yeah, very exciting. And it's just going to do wonders, wonders for the sport. It's going to do wonders for the kids who aspire to to be like the heroes that they're no doubt going to find. There's going to be a lot of incredible role models coming through. Some some of the teams coming through, which is sensational. Mm, what kind of legacy that leaves behind for women and girls, or women and girls who are even going to play soccer for the first time? Showing them that there's a pathway, a pathway 
to success that's valid mm-hmm. is a wonderful thing. You know, that um, I remember when I was younger, you know, when we would coach young, young teams with girls, there was less of a pathway and they would gradually often would sort of lose interest or drift away, but hopefully the retention of um, the girls and ladies will be um, much greater. Mm. And um, yeah, there'll be a pathway to a career for them as well, mm. I mean, which we've seen. We've seen some incredible Australians having wonderful, wonderful careers. Mm. So hopefully it's going to inspire more people to follow that path, to live that dream and have it be a valid dream that it's a reality and it can become a reality. Yeah. Um, I've been asking everyone this question kind of at the end of the interview. Um, we, we're talking about football and we're talking about sport, but what does it mean to you to be a woman today? That's a great question, especially for me. <laughs> Because sometimes I have to shake myself up and look look back at my life and go, my God, you you managed to live your reality. You make your like, your dream of who you really were a reality. And I every morning I probably get up and pinch myself and go, my God, you did it. You just you actually did it. You had the guts and the strength to be exactly who you want to be. And, you know, I have to admit, I, I feel I feel humbled to even have a remote opportunity to be considered as a woman in that environment. I don't, I take it very seriously and I understand the honour that that is mm-hmm. to be treated as, as who I am. It's mm-hmm. just, an unbelievable feeling. It's unbelievably empowering. Mm. You know, be forever humble and respectful of the kindness that so many people have shown me to allow me to to thrive in that mm. in that role. When you like look back on that time, like you were, you said the word resilience. Um, where do you think that courage came from? I think. To be honest, I always had an element of um, feeling like I could do anything even when I couldn't from when I was a little kid. And if I thought I could fly, I would believe it. That was who I was. You know, if I wanted something bad enough, wanted to do something, I would find a way, even if I wasn't any good at it, even if I sucked, I would. And it still goes the same with me today with everything I do, whether it's with work or whether it's with play or with music or whatever. I'll just keep hammering away at a problem until it doesn't become a problem. And that is where my resilience comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's like that little five-year-old covered in mud who thought they could play for West Ham, probably far from the totally far from the truth but in my own mind that was in reality mm. that's what I believed and nothing was going to shake that mm. and that's still me to them yeah what a wonderful feeling to it's, believe in yourself it's a great 
great feeling. You, you have your moments of weakness when people will try and take your belief away from you. They'll try and undermine you in some way to make you feel worse about what you're doing or who you are. And especially as, as you are successful in any particular field, there's going to be 100 million people who are quite happy to say they could have done it better and they should be doing what you're doing. And having to learn how to cope with that criticism or that level of um, negativity to what you're doing and still rise above that and stay strong to follow your path is, I think, been my biggest challenge. And I think I've sort of done okay to get this far, you know, to to be surviving and doing what I love at my age. Mm. Yeah, bear in mind I'm 62. Yeah. And I don't feel a day at the 30s. Yeah, you look amazing. But physically I feel that way. Yeah. You know, I don't feel intimidated about anything when I go on the field. You know, I can run and chase and do all the things I would love to do. Be yourself and be for myself. So it's just the ultimate. You know, I've not, you know, honestly, when I was younger, I thought, well, if you want, you know, if you want success, you're going to have to sacrifice a lot of things that are you. Mm-hmm. And I have lived that way for many years. And I realized that it is actually possible to be, to be exactly who you are and still do what you love. Mm-hmm. There, you don't have to trade things off. Mm. Yeah, I don't know where that came from in my head, but it was there. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's the greatest thing I can draw out of my life is to turn, you can pick up all the pieces and put them back together and be stronger. Mm. And don't let people grind you down. Just stay strong. That's the best advice I would ever have to me as a, as a 12, 13-year-old who was struggling and seeing in the bedroom crying, worrying about who they were and wanting to literally disappear from the face of the planet because you felt you were worthless, I would go back and say to that crying little me, just to suck it in, be strong, you've got this, you can do this, it's not as bad, nothing is ever as bad as you make it, you can, mm-hmm. you can, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're your own best friend. You have to be. Yeah. Yeah. We only have ourselves at the end of the day, don't we? That's the bottom line is that everything you do in life, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have a choice. Yep. You can let people grind you down or you can overcome and rise above it. Yeah. That's my choice to rise above it. Do you have any final messages that you'd like to share? Yeah. For me, I feel intensely honoured to even be considered for this. I couldn't believe it when they put my name forward and I was going, no, no, no. This is, you know, I'm not good enough again. And I had to get over that and go, no, you need to walk tall, stand up straight and just feel that you are good enough. And... um even at this late stage in my life, I, I feel that by, by being a part of this and doing this, that I've done that. And um, I hope that future generations will gather something from the strength 
and re- resilience of my experience and um, go on to great things. I hope, I would dearly love for someone who's listening to this now to actually go on to great heights and do something fantastic. That would be the ultimate. Mm-hmm. And I know it's in them. I know that they can do it. They've just got to want it and do it and believe and go for it. Grab it with both hands. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories. It was developed in conjunction with and funded by the State Library of Western Australia. Our organisations believe in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Head to slwa.wa.gov.au to listen to the rest of this oral history collection. Or head to centreforstories.com to learn more about our storytelling services and mission. Special thanks to our production team, script editor and executive producer Louisa Mitchell, that's me, producer and interviewer Chris Morano, and audio engineer Mason Velios. Thank you.